Shining City Audio, a John Meacham and C-13 original studio. March 3rd, 1913, the Women's Suffrage March in Washington. I'm John Meacham, and this is Reflections of History. Arriving in the Capitol for his first inauguration on this date in March 1913, the president-elect, Woodrow Wilson, was disappointed to find so few well-wishers at Union Station or on the streets. Where, Wilson asked, are the people? Oh, he was told, they are out watching the suffrage parade. The demonstration that day, this date, was enormous and chaotic. Angry men taunted the marchers and tried to break their ranks. The Baltimore American reported that the suffragists practically fought their way foot by foot up Pennsylvania Avenue through a surging throng that completely defied Washington police. Only the arrival of cavalry troops from Fort Myer, the army base across the Potomac, brought a semblance of order to the day. In a small meeting in the East Room later that month with Alice Paul, a leading advocate for suffrage, and seven of her colleagues, President Wilson refused to take up their cause. The fact that the fight for the right to vote had been waged for seven decades, since really the founding convention of the movement at Seneca Falls, New York in 1848, did not impress Wilson. I do not care to enter into a discussion of that, the president told his visitors, ending the conversation. It was not then an auspicious beginning, but the White House meeting was only that, a beginning. After she left the East Room, Alice Paul headquartered herself on Lafayette Square, and launched a persistent campaign of protest at Wilson's doorstep. Born in 1885 to a distinguished Quaker family in Pennsylvania, Paul had been influenced by the more militant British suffrage movement. If arrested, the suffragists, including Paul, would refuse food in jail, leading to highly publicized, painful force feedings. The gruesome details of prison officials jamming tubes carrying milk and mush through the protesters' nostrils turned public opinion against the authorities. The roots of the long campaign to extend the vote and equal protection to women are older even than the Republic. A few months before the Second Continental Congress broke decisively with Great Britain, John Adams was at work in Philadelphia when he received an engaging letter from his wife, Abigail. I long to hear that you have declared an independency, and by the way, in the new code of laws, which I suppose will be necessary for you to make, I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors, Mrs. Adams wrote. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. At Seneca Falls in July of 1848, a women's right convention brought about by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott, among others, issued a declaration of rights and sentiments that sanctified the movement's creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal. Susan B. Anthony, an essential figure, echoed the point down the years. It was we the people, not we the white male citizens, nor yet we the male citizens, but we the whole people who form the union she said in 1873. 
and we formed it not to give the blessings of liberty, but to secure them, not to the half of ourselves and the half of our posterity, but to the whole people, women as well as men. Through the years, by fits and starts, and in good times and bad, the work went on. The climactic drama came after the parade that was held on this date, in the Wilson years, when Alice Paul, focused on the ratification of the 19th Amendment, kept the pressure on. Demonstrators were known as silent sentinels, and they stood outside the White House every day. For the first time in American history, the historian Gene H. Baker wrote, an organized group of dissidents, not just a single individual like Henry David Thoreau, had employed passive resistance and civil disobedience in a direct confrontation with presidential authority. And with the passage of the 19th Amendment, it worked. Thank you for listening to Reflections of History, a creation of Shining City Audio, a C-13 Originals and John Meacham Studio. Reflections of History is executive produced by me, John Meacham, and Chris Corcoran, Chief Content Officer and Founding Partner of Cadence 13. Production and editing led by Lloyd Lockridge, Margot Gray, and Chris Basil. Production assistance by Andy Jaskowitz and Adam Macias. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.